Well, last week we, uh, we started this sermon from James chapter 2, and instead of it being a really long sermon last week, we broke it up into two shorter sermons so that we could have adequate time to apply it. And we established a baseline understanding of the text last week, and we did that so that we could actually have a lot of time to practically put it into practice in our lives this week. So last week, uh, if you could open up to James chapter 3, that'd be great. Uh, we looked at these verses and we realized that we have been liberated from having to keep the requirements of the Mosaic Covenant and the Mosaic Law, per, per se. It's not that we don't need to follow God's commands. It's just that those who have tasted in the goodness of His grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have been changed at the heart level and we find our righteousness in the accomplishments of Christ alone and not on our feeble efforts to try to keep up establishing a righteousness of our own. We likened it to a stairmaster, right? Once you're done with your workout in the stairmaster, there's still an endless amount of stairs that could be climbed. We could never keep up with the requirements of the Mosaic law, but Christ fulfilled the law for us by becoming a curse, and cursed is the man who hung on a tree. So, God's commandments to us now are not burdensome to us, as it says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. We echo the exclamation of the psalmist when he says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. We see that in Psalm 119, verse 97. I think that is on the screen. Do we have the PowerPoint working? That one should be on the screen for you guys. But Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day of, and all the day of, and throughout the night. We've been liberated from the law, and now we're being judged under a different law, which is the law of liberty. All right? We are free to follow King Jesus and do as he says, and we ought to be zealous for good works, as it says in Titus chapter 2, verse 14. So there's a poem I memorized this last week when I was kind of in the sun in Arizona, you know. It actually is sunny down there. And, uh, but it says this, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, and then to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child, and duty into choice. We've been liberated to follow God freely, to follow King Jesus, and to do what He says. And that's what we looked at last week when we looked at these verses. We tried to establish from our text that now that we know what we know, we need to put these things into practice and last week we just hinted at what we're going to be talking about today. Last week we said that our lives need to be congruent with and in harmony with the gospel's call to be new creations. And in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, James is going to identify three evidences that we should have in our lives since our hearts have been liberated. And here's the thing. Our lives should provide extensive evidence of the gospel's life-changing power. You're going to hear me say that multiple times this week, and I said it last week. Our lives, when you look at your life, your life should provide extensive evidence of the gospel's life-changing power. And so today we're going to look at three exhibits, really kind of three evidences that need to be in our lives. Exhibit A, Exhibit B, and Exhibit C that must be in our lives, as James points it out to us, in James chapter 2. And let's start with exhibit A. A life that has been changed by the gospel is more impressed by the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ than the glory of the riches of men. 
Let's pray as we get into this. God, we desperately need your attention on our time here today that you would be so kind to be our teacher as we open up your word and as we see these three different exhibits that should be in all of our lives or give evidence to the fact that the gospel has come to us in a saving, salvific type of way. And so, God, as we give our attention to your word, I pray that you give us your attention, that you would teach us, that you would be so kind to meet us right where we're at in your word, and that you might be honored and glorified in all that we say and do today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A life that has been changed by the gospel is more impressed by the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ than the glory of the riches of man. Look at James chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. My brothers, let me open this up. He says this, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring in fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in this good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you then not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has, God, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? The readers of this text, that when they got this letter, the readers of this text were initially catering to the rich because of what they thought that the rich were bringing to the table. These people that read this initially were using people for their own personal gain. Look in the text, look what was happening. Apparently they were saving and giving away the good seats at the table to people who had, apparently, who had money. And they were giving the people of means the better seats. And we can speculate as to why this was taking place, because if you give a man of means a good seat, then that person might be under potential obligation to do a favor back your way. You know? People were making distinctions among the brotherhood, among the called-out brotherhood of Christ, based off of a perceived advantage that it might give the person who is actually giving the favors. This is so backwards to the call of Jesus who came to serve others and give his life as a ransom. These people that were reading this were like actually looking at people that were walking into their assembly. They're surveying the crowd and they're calculating who might be worthy of their attention. And then after classifying everyone in the assembly in the room and assessing what might be most advantageous for them, then they distribute the party favors. Like you say here, you say here, and like they chum it up with this person and not that person. And they do that so that they might get something in return. And what James says is, my brothers, this should not be. We're going to work hard to practically apply this this week. Do you know how insidiously selfish this is. And against the main call of the gospel to deny yourself 
and to take up your cross and follow. But what James is addressing is not just something that first century crowd was struggling with. It actually happens all the time to us. We're so often impressed by the riches and the wealth of people. And James says, don't be impressed with the gold ring on a person's finger, but rather, if you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, be impressed with the glory of Jesus. James chapter 2, verse 1. Look at this closely. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, one of the key words that you need to understand is that word hold in our text. Look at it. The word hold is key to understanding the logic of James in this paragraph. That word hold means to possess or to experience something. If you're holding something in your hands, it's something that is in your possession. You actually have the ability to experience it. So let's illustrate this for a moment, all right? Imagine stepping outside on a rainy day. Anybody ever done that? Right? It's not hard to imagine that here in the Pacific Northwest, right? And I know that we really don't do this here, but back when, when I was in the Midwest in Chicago, what you would do is on a rainy day, you would make sure that if you're sensible enough, that you would have an umbrella along with you. Here we just say, it's raining, what's new? Let's just go, right? Or you grab your rain gear, raincoat, and you just go outside. But let's imagine for a moment that you did grab an umbrella, and you were holding it in your hand. You would be in possession of something that could actually help you experience the, the, the reality of staying dry on a rainy day. This would be your experience because you're in possession of something that you are holding. And that's what James is saying here. What James is trying to say to his readers is that you and I and they are holding something very advantageous to us. James is saying that we are holding the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he gives an appropriate nickname to him, who just so happens to be the Lord of glory. That's what you're holding in your hands. That's your possession. That's your experience. That's very advantageous to you. So James is saying, look, if you know him, if you're holding your faith into him, right, if you're, if you're impressed a little bit with a gold ringer, be more, a gold ring around someone's finger, be more impressed with the Lord of glory. Be impressed by Him. Don't be so impressed with someone's gold ring on their finger. It's not that impressive next to the Lord of glory. And so, if you're gonna be impressed by riches alone, listen to what the psalmist says. In Psalm 24 verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Not just the gold rings, right? He owns everything. So you should be impressed by him, mostly. So if you and I find an inclination in our hearts to work people over for our own advantage, why don't you at least start with the king of kings, right? That's what James is going to say. He actually has something very valuable to offer you. He has precious blood that can ransom you from your futile ways of living, as Peter so aptly announces in his first epistle. And so James is going to say, don't settle for a man with a gold ring. There's really no comparison. It's ridiculous 
and preposterous even to consider it now. And this isn't James just trying to come down hard on people. This is a very emotional James. Trying to come alongside us and attempting to help us to see things rightly as they truly are. I love the emotion in this text. Look at it. James is going to pull us in close and he's going to say in verse 5, Look, listen, my beloved brothers, brothers and sisters, family, kinsmen, Listen to this message, I'm going to tell you. This is the second time that he announces them as brothers or part of the family of God in this passage. He said in verse 1, and then he ends it in verse 5. There's emotion dripping in this text. That tells me that James has a very heartfelt message that needs to be heard by the members of the called out community. He says, look, this is, this is a family matter here, brothers and sisters. He says, listen, my beloved family members. And then he's going to remind them of a secret. And what's the secret that he reminds them of? It's verse 5. He says this, listen, my beloved family members. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? So, this is what he's saying. He's going to say that those who are poor in the world, that if they love the Lord, if they hold on to their faith in the Lord of glory, and they're judged under His perfect law that has liberated them, and mercy has triumphed over their judgment, they will one day, look what they inherit, they inherit a kingdom on the new earth. That's a big deal. That's an actually something that's supremely advantageous to them and to you. And so what the text is going to say, these are the ones that are set to inherit a much more supremely valuable thing. It's a lasting kingdom. So would you rather be impressed by someone with a gold ring on their finger now or somebody who's going to inherit a kingdom later? Whoa. Like, kingdom sounds bigger than gold ring. Like, if you're just going to assess the situation, James is going to point that out. Like, this person's going to have a kingdom while that person has a little gold ring. So exhibit A is that a life that has been changed by the gospel is more impressed by the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ than the glory of the riches of men. Like, I have Christ. That's, I want to work Him for my advantage, not the crowd. I want to work Him for my advantage. He's got precious blood to offer me that can bring me into an eternal kingdom, which is very, very good. So be more impressed with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ than just what people can offer you, is what James is saying. And exhibit B is this. A life that has been changed by the gospel does not show favoritism. And this is where we're going to get extremely applicable here in the next two points. A life that has been changed by the gospel does not show favoritism. Look at verse 2 and verse 4. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And if we do show partiality, if we show favoritism, then we will be guilty of verse 4. Well, what does verse 4 say? He says this, If you do show partiality and favoritism, then you will have made distinctions 
among yourselves, and you've become judges with evil thoughts. This should be a major deterrent to us. If a biblical author says that our thinking or our behavior is evil, then we better listen up and make every effort to make sure we don't have in our lives what he is pointing at. And in this case, it's favoritism or partiality. Because if the biblical author is able to point out thinking and behavior in our lives that's evil, then we know that's not in harmony with or congruent with the gospel's call on our lives to be new creations. And so here's the thing. To answer the burning question on everyone's mind, why do I look like this today? <laughs> I got some looks coming in, you know. I'm kind of trying to do this to be an example of what's happening in the text, all right? You all passed the test, right? I kind of set you all up, all right? Some said, I wonder if he's going to have a job this next week, <laughs> right? And the truth is, I debated on whether or not I would do this or if I'd dress in shabby clothing or something like that. But it's really not a one-to-one correlation, right? Because you guys kind of know me. I'm not a stranger, but for illustrative purposes, it will do. And from the looks that I got from some of you as I walked in, it did, right? Right? But God hates prejudice. He hates prejudging somebody based off of external appearances alone. It's partiality. He hates prejudging a person simply by outward appearance. And that seems to be what James is addressing here. In, among, among the church of God, what seemed to be happening here were Christians were assembling together, and some in the assembly were treating people who from external purposes and external appearances looked as if they had more to offer than those from who external appearances seem have less to offer to those in the assembly. And so they're catering to, to a group of people like, well, you, you're, you're important and you're not that important, right? And what God led James to write down for us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that sin, and it needs to stop. James says, just stop that. Why? Because that's evil don't do it anymore so what is favoritism and why is it so evil and why should it be avoided at all cost and james utilizes a common idiom that meant to quote receive the face of somebody end quote that's that's what he said in the original it's like you receive someone's face this is just by this is just evaluating things at a face value, and not taking anything else into consideration. This is evaluating somebody on their external appearance only. And James utilizes this idiom in a negative way. James says, don't do that. What James presents in this text seems to be related to showing favoritism based off of apparent financial wealth. Well, that person seems like they got a nice car, a nice house. I should be in contact with them because maybe some kickback will come my way, right? But we've already hit on the wealth piece in our last point, so I want to take it a step further because all throughout the Bible, we see that partiality or any type of favoritism is not to be practiced among a people of faith. We should not show favoritism because that's not what our God is like, and we're supposed to be like Him. So you're very familiar with the story with David, right? 
We see this clearly evidenced in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, where we read that man looks at the outward appearance, but what does God look at? God looks at the what? The heart. And so we see that as that's the characteristic of our God. We should be like him. We should do the same. Fast forward in Acts chapter 10. And Peter is given a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven with all sorts of animals in it, clean and unclean alike. And a voice came down with the sheet as well. And we read in Acts chapter 10, verse 13, And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's like, Whoa, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. He's making distinctions here. And from his perspective, based off of Old Testament law, it seemed like there was distinctions to be made. But then it says in verse 15, And a voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. And then it happens a third time, like Peter just has to get it drilled into him. A third time, and Peter finally gets it by verse 34 and 35. And this is what he says. He says, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and who does what is right is acceptable to Him. God doesn't show partiality. Salvation is made available for everyone, not just the ethnic Jew. It's available for everyone who fears Him and does what is right, even the people on your sworn enemies list, even as it was available for the thief next to Jesus on a cross. And for those in the crowd who yelled out for Jesus to be crucified while Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The good news of the gospel is that it's for everyone. So don't be impartial because of apparent wealth. And don't be impartial because of ethnicity or anything. We're all in the same boat together. So Paul says to the Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave or free. There's no male or female, but you're all one in Christ Jesus. So don't be impartial. Whether you're a boss or a hired hand, or whether you're a male or a female, because do you know what happens when you show favoritism to somebody? Verse 4 happens. And look what verse 4 says. We've made distinctions among ourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. We make distinctions that ought not to be there among ourselves. This is to the church community, as James is writing. And we become judges with evil thoughts. When we do this, we're actually devaluing the souls of people because we all bear the image of God and we don't have the ability to know a person based off of external appearances only. It doesn't matter if they wear a gold ring or if they wear shabby clothes, this is the shabbiest clothing I could find, right? Or burqa, right? Or if they're overweight or underweight, etc., etc., etc. We are incapable of judging people correctly just from the outside. Now, some of you would say, well, that's just the way I was brought up. And that's just the way I am. And so this is what I say to you. That's why the gospel came to you. To change you. So you don't have to remain that way anymore. He's actually come to give you a new heart of flesh instead of having a heart of stone. So, real practical now. How does that relate to the the in-crowd mentality that so often happens in the local church? 
It should annihilate it. So often I hear people talking about the local church having cliques. Have you ever heard someone say that? Oh, that church is clicky, this church is clicky, that church is clicky. Right. Cliques in the local church can be disastrous. If people that attend here feel marginalized or excluded and unimportant, then it's only a matter of time before they move on to another body of believers. And if we who gather here never repent of having such a closed-off demeanor, then it will only be a matter of time that our lampstand will be removed completely. And we can shut the doors on this place and turn it back into a working dairy farm, right? Favoritism and showing partiality within the local church is a really, really good way to let the gates of hell prevail. So we can't do that here. And that's what James is addressing in the first century, and it comes across the centuries, and it comes to us today. So let's talk about the in-crowd of people that so often make up the local church. When I refer to the in-crowd of people, what I'm referring to is people who think that they have more to offer the body of believers or that might need to be catered to by the body of believers because by their own assessment, they consider themselves more important than the other ones gathered here. And they might think this way because of their longevity in the community or because of who they're related to or because they can intimidate or manipulate the masses with their loud or sarcastic voice. But none of that ought to matter here because the only thing that should matter in the local church is that all of us are simply here because of Jesus and the mercy and the grace that He has offered to us. It's been extended to us, and so we're part of His local assembly, part of the universal called out ones of Christ, and we're members of each other. As Paul writes the Romans in chapter 12, verse 5, he says, So we, though many, were one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. So every person matters here, even if you think that you don't feel like you matter here. Because according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, every one of us is a unique masterpiece of God because we all bear His image. And so now, here, practically speaking now, some of you might say, and I grieve for you over this, some of you might say, well, I don't feel like I matter here. I don't feel like I matter. I don't feel like I'm hurt. I feel like I'm invisible. I see people talking to people and I don't feel like I, what, I don't fit in. I don't feel that way. Or you might not feel like you fit in and for that I'm extremely sorry. But this text, listen, for those of you that might feel that way, listen to this. This is not to be harsh. But if you feel that way, this text is for all of us in the local church, not just for those who you think are in the in crowd. So this text comes to you as well. We're all here and we're all responsible for making this assembly awesome. Each of us are vitally important here. And we all must work together to contribute to make this place as welcoming and kind and as communal as we can. And that comes to everybody, whether you assess people are in the in crowd or I'm not part of the in crowd. This text is coming to you too as well. And so many of you know this about myself I was at my former church for 22 years. That's a long time, especially in pastoral ministry, and I pray that the Lord would give me that opportunity here and even longer. But for 22 years, and I was on staff, I was an intern and 
staff member, elder, all those things, right? You'd think, well, that person's in the in crowd. Well, even after 22 years, there were times that I felt like I wasn't in the in crowd. And of course I was, right? There, and there really is no in crowd, but I, I was always thinking, it's like, man, I wish that this person would pay attention. I wish, I was like, what am I doing? I'm playing this game with myself. And the reason why I felt that I wasn't part of the in crowd sometimes is because our church was established in 1899. So guess what? That means that there was a work of God that preceded me coming, right? I'm not that old, right? Obviously, there was a work of God that was going on in that place way before I got there, and it's continuing on way after I'm left there. But it, sometimes it would make me feel that I wasn't much part of the church because I wasn't around as long as others who had been there longer than me. But the truth is that the longevity didn't really matter as it relates to someone's worth. Yes, they might have a more seasoned perspective, and maybe they have more accumulated wisdom, but they're not worth more. I remember this one earth-shattering moment for me. We had a, a gentleman in our former church. I'm not going to say his name. Um, but I was like, okay, this guy is awesome. Like, everybody loves this guy. And I was like, he must be a lifer here at Bethel Community Church in Chicago, right? And then like maybe seven or eight years into my ministry there, I realized I think he came like two weeks before I came in 1999, but from my perception, I was like, okay, this is the guy that everybody loves, and he's kind of this guy that is important, and, and everybody's, like, not catered to him, but, like, he's kind of a cool guy. And I was like, he, he's just as new as I was. But from my perception, I was like, oh, man, I, I'll never be like that. But the truth is I, I just didn't have the opportunity to see things from, like, a more holistic perspective. And, and we all here, we're all here right now, whether this is your first Sunday second, third, 50th, maybe you're here when they first opened. We're all here in God's timing and by God's grace alone. And so that means that we all fit in here somewhere. So how can we create a culture, an environment of non-favoritism here? Well, what kept coming across my mind over the last few weeks is something that JFK said, and we could amend it. Ask not what your church can do for you, but ask what you can do for your church. Instead of being such a consumer, it's like, well, what can the church do for me? It's like, no, what can I do to contribute to make this place awesome here in the way that only I can? So ask people questions. How long have you been coming here, right? Get to know their names. Learn their stories. Speak words of encouragement to all types of people, not just those that are in your in-crowd mentality, Right? Find out where there's ministry needs and then see if you're gifted to help out. One point of practical application I would suggest to you, because we're all creatures of habit, but maybe once a month sit in a different section of the building. What? He wore a chief's shirt and now he's telling you. Like, once a month just try it. Shake somebody else's hand that you've never shook before during the greeting time. Right? It takes intentionality to get to know each other better. It takes intentionality to break down those walls and those barriers. We can have greeters with name tags at the entrances, but if people visit here for the first time or the 50th time, and they're only greeted by people with official you know, FCC logos, then that's a love problem for our church. We've made distinctions like, well, here's my people, and someone else take care of everybody else, Right? That's such a bad mindset. And if there's a love problem in our church, you know who should fix it? 
You. You. Not the people that you think that are in the in crowd. You're responsible for this. I'm responsible for this. And so the old adage proves true. Look, if you want to have a friend, what do you need to be? Be a friend. And friendship is what? It's hard work. It takes planning. It takes intentionality. It takes work. And some of you say, well, I'm introverted, so it's going to be really hard. Well, no one said it would be easy. No one said that. No one said it would be easy to follow Jesus on a narrow path. So just take up your cross and follow him. We here at FCC, we know each other. We know each other's quirks and our mannerisms and our shortcomings. We know our strengths and all that's a good thing. That's what the body of Christ should be able to do. And we should know each other better. So your first response when you see somebody or meet somebody for the first time or the 50th time should be this, how can I love this person? How can I honor this person? What can I do to help this person feel established and connected here? Or who could I connect them with that might be very similar to them so they can feel like they have a connection here and established? Listen, many of us, maybe even all of us, have benefited from like a Rick and Sadie Holloman or a Loie Feenstra greeting. All of us have been served by the administrative efforts of team leaders like Scott Painter, Cecil Martin, and Erica Berdan. Many of us have been cared for specifically by getting meals from people or being prayed over by men's and women's ministry leaders, different meal coordinators. All of us have benefited from the sacrificial and cheerful financial giving of each member of this body to keep the building warm and to keep ministries operational with staffing. The local church is absolutely amazing. None of us have to be here. You don't have to be here, but you've been called to assemble here. So contribute and bless other people when you're here. The reason it's amazing is because we all contribute to each other in this place based off of, of our unique giftings and abilities that God has given to each one of us that call this place our spiritual home. And so we're all vitally important here, not just the ones that from external appearances seem to be important. So what would it look like? What would it look like if we looked at Jesus by external appearances alone? What if we would have just evaluated him based off of his external appearance? We would have missed out on the most important relationship that we are meant to have. What was said of Jesus? Think about it. That he grew up before us like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, who had no form, no majesty, that we should look at him, no beauty, that we should even desire him. Yet, he is our priceless treasure. So there could be other like priceless treasures sitting around you. So get to know where those treasures are. We have known this all along, but all that glitters isn't gold, and you can't judge a book by its cover. And so that's exhibit B. A life that has been changed by the gospel does not show distinctions by showing favoritism. And exhibit C, and this one's quick, is that a life that has been changed by the gospel keeps the royal law. Look at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. This is the law of the king. This is the royal law. This is what we ought to do. This is Leviticus 19.18. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And why is loving your neighbor yourself evidence 
of your life being changed by the gospel is because loving your neighbor is what God has done for us. We must love like that. We've been loved sacrificially by God, even when we had nothing to offer in return. God didn't just love us and love those who might benefit himself, right? He loved the world, so he gave his son. We must love like that, unconditionally and indiscriminately. Now, some of you would say, well, I don't feel that way. It's hard for me to emotionally engage and love people that are different from me in any way. Well, here, let me give you what Paul Tripp says about love. I love this definition. Love is a willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation. Oh, (laughs) so that means all of us can love. You can love your spouse. You can love your kids. You can love the members of this church without anything. Like, well, I'm going to do this so I get something in return. That's not love then. Then you're guilty of showing favoritism or, you know, catering to people so that you can get something out of it. That's not what love is. That's not the way God loved us. It has nothing to do whether you feel like it or not. Or you have, if you anticipate getting something in return, it's an act of your will. So we can freely love other people. We can really keep the royal law or the king's law or the best law without any selfish reasons behind our love because it's the way that Jesus loved us. He laid down his life for us. And he endured our death on a cross. And I think we should all aspire to let all that we do be done in love. So here's three exhibits, three of them, to work on that ought to be in our lives that give evidence to the gospel's life-changing power. So are you more impressed with the glory of Jesus and the riches of man? When you don't show favoritism, and if you love willingly and sacrificially every neighbor that comes across your way, and if we give evidence to this because of the life-changing gospel's power in our lives, What the law could not do, God did by sending his son to meet the righteous requirements and die in our place. If we could do this, then we will demonstrate that he is our greatest treasure. That we're more impressed by him than the riches of this world. And that's why we don't judge people on outward appearances only. And that's why we don't become closed off to the people that make up this local church. And that's why we love self-sacrificially for the good of other people without any expectation of repayment. And if we do that, then we will have great evidence of the gospel's life-changing power in our lives. Let's pray. God, there's, there's very practical things here that we can work on, and we want to sing in response to you as we enter into a time of communion about how we've been sacrificially loved by you. And so, God, I pray that we would be able to see the deep love that you have for us. You're willing to give yourself to us And that we would, in turn, be willing to give ourselves on behalf of other people for their benefit. Because love is a willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation. So God, help us to take this time seriously as we enter in this holy time of communion. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we sing this song.